So to survive, our ancestors, at the very least, needed to balance two very strong conflicting needs. On one side, I would call it the absolute, uh, the physiological need to stay alive, uh, the imperative of survival. Survival impulses to uh, seek shelter from threats, to achieve food, to uh, attain protective clothing against the elements, uh, fear of predators, uh, all the future survival concerns that would keep us going. <clears throat> and of course, to incentivize though that very strong survival impulses, the brain has set up um, very strong neural rewards to promote uh, attaining survival advantages and security. The midbrain, from birth, the circuits that promote survival are deeply wired from uh, amygdala, hippocampus, striatum, uh, cortex uh, to all the neurotransmitters involved in survival, adrenal, uh, ACTH, uh, especially uh, cortisol. So the dopamine, though, which is the, the principal neural reward, which promotes taking care of yourself, making sure you're safe, attaining objects, uh, hoarding compulsively, uh, attaining things that make you feel secure are very strong. And um, the left hemisphere of the brain is, uh, helps out in this task of survival in that it uh, looks out for long-term survival planning and it's deeply wired to help in the triggering of dopamine. Um, there's no two ways around it. If we don't survive, uh, the species obviously would not be doing very well. So it's strongly implicated, and it's a very principal need that we all have to feel uh, secure, safe, uh, by attaining uh, all the stuff that ensures our physiological well-being. Then on the other side, we call that individual survival. Then there's um, the drive to connect collectively with other people, which is um, equally important for us. As a species, our principal advantage is that we connect so well and uh, collaborate on such remarkably different levels no other species is capable of spreading new tools, new information, organizing, um, and that's really why the human species has fared so well. We connect not just emotionally, which is the core principle impulses that drive us to connect, but we also can use language. So we, can, we connect on multiple different levels. Again, though, the, the principal area of the brain responsible to keeping us connected is the emotional realm of the right 
hemisphere. And our emotions are largely litmus tests to impel us to connect and, and to achieve secure interactions and relations with others. So um, when we connect well, we feel joy, pride, esteem, positive emotions. When we do things that hurt those that we're close to, we feel guilt, shame, embarrassment, um, especially also when we hurt the tribe to which we're connected. Human beings, again, we don't run fast, we don't dig holes particularly quickly, we don't have claws, we don't have shells, we don't have armoring, we don't, uh, we can't dive into the ocean and swim particularly quickly, but we can coordinate with each other, and that's why we've fared so well. So the fact that we're capable of altruistic drives, such as generosity, goodwill, patience, forgiveness, is very much at the core of our success. And each of us has to, at the very least, balance these twin impulses, which are very often in conflict the need to uh, essentially promote our own individual survival by obtaining goods and resources versus the need to spend time developing secure, reliable relationships with others, which require vulnerable disclosure, honesty, you know, essentially not looking after number one. And very often in our own lives, the, for instance, in modern life, this translates to, um, in capitalism, with the erosion of the family structure, the erosion in modern capitalism of social safety nets um, and programs that promote the welfare of, of people who are struggling. Uh, it, capitalism promotes this every man, every woman for themselves type of, uh, perspective, and it can lead to a form of excessive concern with one's career, and it can conflate long-term financial security with the sense of physiological survival. So that's one hand. We can be old. We can be very concerned with our careers, our work, our job security, our financial security. But at the same time, there's the conflicting need to connect with those we care about, we trust, for emotion regulation, for support. Um, the left cingulate of the brain constantly focuses attention on obtaining career narratives. How am I going to succeed? But then the right hemisphere, when we feel disconnected, lonely, uh, isolated, it pulls us back to those feelings and, and urges us to connect and to become vulnerably relational with other people. So in uh, capitalism and certainly in our species, most of us tend to over-prioritize individual survival over making secure connections. Uh, the diminishment of the village square, or the family structures, growing up in compounds and in large arenas leaves us more and more 
isolated from core uh, reliable friendships. And when we try to meet those needs um, through other ways, through uh, consuming, uh, it promotes a lot of uh, actions and behaviors that come at our long-term uh, disadvantage. Uh, for example, when we don't connect well with other people, there tends to be a buildup of cortisol in the bloodstream, which is, in terms of just our health, is uh, very, as I suppose, uh, the only word that's coming up is deleterious, but I don't know why that's coming up. Uh, uh, it builds up in the blood, interfering with learning and memory, lower immune function, reduced from production of white blood cells, weight gain, high blood pressure, uh, but even more so than the physiological problems of not feeling well connected, uh, not feeling like we belong to a tribe, is the uh, negative emotions associated with being excessively concerned with our own survival and poorly connected with uh, real friendships where other people know what's going on with us emotionally. When we don't feel that connection, we tend to binge to try to create the, the felt presence of other people in our lives. We watch a lot of television, we binge on food, or we binge on shopping, and all of, and hoarding, and all of these things create the feeling of other people being present in our life, even though, or sometimes we might binge on social media to create the feeling of other people being there. Um, so it's not a healthy solution. It's important to have balance. If we balance too far towards, um, of course, connecting with other people and uh, to the expense of uh, our own physiological survival and our own needs, then other problems arise. Now there's a third set of needs that I haven't even mentioned. I've mentioned so far the need to survive uh, to take care of our long-term financial health or our, the feeling of um, the need to uh, have job security. Then there's also the need to connect with others. And the third set of needs could be summed up as actualization and esteem. Um, this higher set of needs is the result of the fact that we all live in... Uh, a conscious mind that produces a lot of language, a story of our life, what we've been up to, who we are, our identity, where we've been, where we're going. So we all position ourselves in this story of me, this inner autobiography. Uh, and to feel any sense of purpose or meaning to life, we have to have this feeling or sense that we've actualized our existence in some way that's unique to us or uh, expresses our core feelings in a way that's a benefit or viewable by others. We, we crave respect, uh, creative endeavor. We want to be known. We want to feel that our existence is in some way known by others. And this is, of course, the result of the advanced faculties of the language-bearing symbolic brain. We want to 
each feel that our life has turned into a decent story, that we've somehow brought to the world something unique and special, and that there's something about us that is highly regarded or respected. And so um, this forms the third tier of needs. So we could break it down to survival, connection, and actualization, or seeking meaning and purpose. Um, none of this is particularly new. As I'll talk about, the Buddha uh, noted all of these core needs. But before we talk about the Buddha, I'll talk about another um, uh, individual I really like, um, a guy named Abraham Maslow. He's no longer that popular, so that is a name that many of you will not be familiar with. But Maslow was a famous, in his day, uh, existential philosopher, and existentialism and Buddhism are essentially uh, deeply uh, overlapping in many, many core concepts. And Maslow proposed that each human being had a hierarchy of needs that the very base of the hierarchy of needs, and he did it in a triangle, so if you look up uh, Maslow or hierarchy of needs, you'll see again and again and again this triangle. And at the very base of the triangle is the need for physiological survival and security. So that's things like we need water, food, sleep, we need resources, we need to feel that we have... Uh, some form of financial security, and also a sense of external stability, which for Maslow was the sense that we're not living in a war zone or in complete chaos. So it's very difficult to meet this very first level of needs if we're living in Serbia right now or in a place where our ongoing survival is threatened by lawlessness and violence. The middle tier for Maslow was once we've achieved this basic needs, um, we move on to belonging, which for Maslow was connecting with others for emotional regulation, achieving love, friendship, and support. And so we need to move on to that level. And then once we've achieved that, we move on to the highest level, which for him was esteem which came from pride, achievement, creativity, feeling that we're capable of problem-solving in our lives, and attaining peak experiences, like when we travel, we go someplace special, we have memorable events in our lives that make us feel that we've had unique uh, experiences and perceptions. So, in my experience working one-on-one -on -one with people, I found that it's very easy to tell where the imbalances are uh, in this set of three uh, competing needs. If we fail to satisfy our most basic survival needs, there'll be a chronic, a chronic stress. There'll be tension in the shoulders and the jaw and the arms. There'll be hypervigilance, which means jumpiness. Uh, a tendency to panic, and there'll be, of course, very often people who struggle to make meet basic physiological needs have often experienced some form of trauma in their life. So there very often will be the symptoms of dissociation as well. But the chief sign that we're not taking care of our basic needs is 
chronic stress, which is felt in the, the way we breathe and hold the outer shell of the body. Now, the sign that we're not connecting well enough with other people is emotional distress, uh, social anxiety, loneliness, isolation, and addiction. Addiction is an attempt to replace other people for emotional support with drugs and substances. So we, we start to notice in our lives that there's negative affects, feelings of sadness, depression. Uh, this is why, by the way, depression is very often treated with SSRIs, which maintains serotonin in the synaptic presence. Uh, uh, serotonin is the neurotransmitter associated with connecting with other people and feeling safe and feeling at home. Dopamine is the short-term reward for survival needs being met. And it's also achieved by uh, snorting cocaine and shopping. And very often those are symptoms that people are not taking care of basic survival or are anxious about their basic survival needs. On the other hand, diminishment of depression um, is and alcoholism opiate addiction is very often a, an anxiety of a lack of connection in our lives. The third, the failing to become actualized as an individual, to feel that we've been creative, that we've achieved, that we've developed a purpose for our life, is of course a feeling of a deficit of meaning, uh, a lack of, of uh, enthusiasm, a sense of poor creativity, stagnation. Um, also, people tend to be very threatened by other people's views and other people's lifestyles if they haven't in their own life yet actualized their own uh, identities. So stagnation and lack of purpose or meaning is very often the sign that we haven't uh, taken care of our creative needs. All of this is reflected in the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha was very straightforward that before we, un we address any higher form of spiritual practice, we had to meet what he called the four requisites, which were attaining food, shelter, medicine, and clothing to protect us from the elements. So that was just like with Maslow, the Buddha said that there's this baseline physiological needs, and if you don't meet them, all, all the practice you, you have will not um, be of much use. Uh, the positive psychologists like Kahneman and uh, Seligman and Libramorsky and Haidt, they showed that there's this kind of baseline level where if you drop below it in meeting your basic needs, food and shelter, that no matter how many friendships you have, no matter how supportive you feel, you'll still feel vulnerable, you'll still feel chronic stress, you'll still feel, you'll still be subject to trauma. But once you pass that level, Kahneman's research showed that if you, you make more and more money, it doesn't, it doesn't produce well-being. And that from that point on, the next step is to achieve connections with people, reliable interpersonal support. And then the highest level Kahneman found was the people who were felt that in their life they were of benefit 
to the species, to other people, that their skills were actually in some way uh, making other people's lives uh, easier, better, and that other people were respecting us for our endeavor. And that's kind of the highest point. And the Buddha said, once you meet the four requisites, then you move on to the spiritual practice. And in spiritual practice, we balance pro-social actions, which are called um, right action or the precepts. We don't harm. We uh, are honest. We are above board in our endeavor. We don't have employment, which causes uh, pollution or causes uh, suffering to other people needlessly. And then on the other hand, we take care of ourselves through our spiritual practice. I don't think personally that the Buddha emphasized enough creativity, which is why I think that that's like the missing part of the Eightfold Path, that we all need to have a personal creative practice as well as a spiritual practice. Once we do all that, though, the chances of our well-being are very great. So to, uh, for the last part, I'd like to talk about a few ways that we can begin to rebalance in our life so that we can, because obviously meeting all these competing needs is quite a tricky uh, order. So there's some, there's some ways we can go about it that will help us. The first way, and I really urge this, it's going to sound a little bit, maybe uh, assuming that people have uh, financial abilities that they don't have, but somehow even on a Buddhist teacher's meager income I've managed to do this, which is it's important to get the hell out of this country now and then and to see how other people live. In this country we are bombarded with the message that you have to know how much money you're going to have 30 or 40 years from now. And it creates us chained to this narrative that somehow I'm going to die unless I've at 30 figured out my 401k or know how much money I'm going to have when I'm 70. And I'm in my 50s and I really have given up that fantasy. And in this country, in New York, it's very difficult to do that, of course, to let go of that, that sense of, of long-term, that myth of long-term financial security, which is actually fairly impossible to ever achieve, because once you start thinking that way, no amount of money anyway is ever enough. And the Buddha said that uh, the world, in, all the world is not enough to fill that craving once you open that can of worms. But when we travel, when we go to other places, we see people who live quite happily without the slightest regard to how much money they're going to have, you know, to how they, you know, they don't have more than a month's income in the bank. It's very, very common if you get out of here to meet people who don't have that uh, guillotine hanging over their heads all the time. And that feeling that I'm doing it wrong unless I'm constantly worrying about events, you know, 30 years from now. In our, in our narrative, in our cultural uh, hegemonic messaging, there's a sense that we're being irresponsible if we prioritize our well-being and our balanced life and our creativity and our friendships over our career that we're somehow being irresponsible. But in fact, in my 
experience, we're doing just the opposite. We're being irresponsible if we fall into the, the belief that the most important thing to do is to shore up financial security and one's career. Uh, I have done hospice work. I have never met anyone uh, at the end of life who wished that they worked longer. I don't think I ever would. I don't think that's a possibility. And again, if you ever read any of the books by hospice workers, the chief regret that people have is that they didn't take risks, that they over-worried about money and, and financial security, and that they didn't just say when they were in jobs that were sucking their lifeblood out of them or their uh, strength and leaving them exhausted, that they didn't put it aside and didn't uh, pursue new, um, they didn't embrace their life and uh, go for something more authentic, even if it meant less money and less security. Um, there's no way you can talk yourself into that. You have to experience it. You have to see that other people don't live with this degree of fear and this degree of, of um, deeply embedded sense of everyone for themselves. And I, I'm only secure if I've worked it all out and achieved bank, as they say. <laughs> so... Um, of course, the second thing is to learn how to downsize. If we maintain uh, a constant need to uh, consume, uh, then we maintain the constant need to worry more about income. Then we constantly keep ourselves chained to situations that are not producing happiness. So I, there are cognitive exercises like asking, do I really need this? Do I not have other things that would fulfill this need? Um, will this object really bring me greater contentment? And I have to do this all the time because I am especially vulnerable to any shiny new gizmo in an Apple store. They don't bring very much joy or contentment to life, but still they, there's something about them when they first appear in in the window, they have this glow, and I have to ask myself those questions every time so I don't, you know, feel this impulse to try to figure out a way to buy each new shiny generation of needless uh, gadgets. Gratitude practice in life. The brain is what's known as negativity bias. We have five times the neural resources going towards seeing deficits and vulnerabilities than we have towards deeply embedding positive memories of abundance in our life. So to deeply embed the fact that we have enough, that we don't need to worry about financial security or self-individual survival, that we can move on to higher needs, is to really take a look and deeply see just how much we've accomplished and how secure we really are. To not take things for granted and then to allow the mind to just jump back into all the stuff I don't have. Um, obviously a meditation practice is extremely useless, useful, useless, <laughs> uh, useful in that, uh, useless in one's perspective, but extremely, it's extremely useful. <laughs> 
after 30 years, you'd think I would get that right. Uh, in that every moment we spend cultivating inner peace, letting go of consuming or pushing, trying to push away the world around us, every moment we develop mindfulness, we're conditioning a mind that is less hell-bent on accumulating or uh, getting caught up in objects as the solution. Um, and also we're detaching from the, the, those thoughts that are the most obsessive, which are not thoughts about self-actualization or uh, creativity. They're generally thoughts about what's going to happen to me in the future or worrying about what do other people think about me. So um, those are some of the tools that I think are really useful in rebalancing life really familiarizing ourselves again that we don't need to carry around all the fear of being overly uh, responsible, reducing obligations, gratitude practice, daily meditation practice, connecting with others, even making sure in our life that we have some creative outlet. Even though the, the last thing this world needs after another cell phone store is um, is another blog, I still <laughs> encourage you, if you don't have a regular creative outlet, to start your own blog, even if it, there's only one person who's reading it and it's not your mother, um, <laughs> to do something, to have that outlet that makes you feel that you're actualizing your life, which means putting it out so that other people can see and know about your experiences. That, for me, is um, the way we have the most round, rounded, balanced life.